take and turn to the book of Nehemiah, about one-third of the way through your Bible. And this morning I would love to introduce you to one of the greatest leaders we will ever read about in the Bible. This is a man of great vision, a man of powerful praying, a man of passion and great faith, a leader of leaders. And yet at the same time, this guy is very practical. He's got his feet on the ground. There are no miracles in this book to sort of get things going, and yet the sovereign hand of God is everywhere in this. But there's no fancy parting of the Red Sea or fire coming down from heaven. This is just a man of great vision, of powerful prayer, and of really good planning. And he engineers this vision. Andy Stanley's written a book on on leadership entitled Visioneer. I like that term. A visioneer is someone with vision who also knows how to engineer the vision to fruition. Some of us pastors, you know, we're head in the clouds and all this vision, no idea how to get there. Other people are filled with plans and schemes and diagrams, but how do you know if it's from God? Nehemiah is a great visioneer, vision, and he engineers that vision to fruition. And of course, in all of this, he is a picture of Jesus Christ. So today, as I read the opening text, I simply want to give you an overview, set the context for our study. Right now, Israel is in exile. And Nehemiah lives in Persia, in the capital city known as Susa. The year is around 432 B.C., and Nehemiah is eager to hear a report from his brother, who's just returned with several men from Judah. And we read the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
And then jumping down to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, after he gets back there and he speaks to these disgraced and troubled people. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So far, the reading of God's Word. There's something a little different in our assembly room this morning. There it is. There's my map with pins on it. And some of you tease me about how much I love this map. And uh, last week, Pastor Tay and I went through every pin on this map. I wanted him to learn where every one of you lives. I wanted him to know, and, and we, we corrected some of the maps that some knuckleheads, uh, I think, in the church had sort of moved down into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and we added about 30 pins since it had been previously updated. We had to remove about 10 or 12 of people who had moved away. But this morning, I bring back here this map. Why do I obsess over this so much? That might be a bit of an overstatement, but why do you think? Well, it is at least because, you know, I care so much about our church family. And good leadership knows the flock. A good leader knows his team. And we always take attendance on Sunday morning to keep track of the church gathered. The church is the church when she is gathered. But it is also important to know the church when she is scattered. That map reminds us that we are not only a church when we are gathered, but we're the church scattered. And this is where our brothers and sisters live and work and play and live their lives for Jesus Christ. Every one of you is important. Every single adult or every family is represented there on that map. The leaders of this church have a passion for the people of this church. I hope you sense that, and I hope you have that too. And if we're going to understand the book of Nehemiah, we have to understand God's passion for the church. James Packer, in his great commentary on Nehemiah, and he's written a book of, on Christian leadership from the book of Nehemiah, he says this. He says, in his life and ministry, Jesus Christ was much more church-centered than most people realize. I wonder if you remember the first time Jesus uttered the word church. It was right on the heels of that moment when he turns to the disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And then he says, And you are Peter. And upon this rock, here it comes, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Oh, right there. Jesus says, I am the Christ, and this is my mission, to build my church. And the forces of darkness, the worst that hell can bring, will not prevail against her. What does the word church mean? Does it mean a building? You know, some of you woke up this morning and said, I'm going to church. And when you said that, you thought, well, this beautiful building that we have, and we have a beautiful building, it's a wonderful ministry tool here, but I hope by now you know better. The, the bricks and the mortar are not the church. This is the church. The people. What is the church? You. You are the church. Y'all, or as they say down in Virginia, all y'all are the church. Do you know this? The church is an organism. It's this living organism. The Bible describes it that way. The church is an organization. Yes, for some of you in postmodern thought, you hear the word organization and you go, ah, puh! But the Bible itself describes the church as an organization functioning together with charts and, 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 and leadership and, and lists, lists of widows and lists of people and counting numbers and recording names. The church is an organism. The church is an organization. What does the Bible say? What images? What are, just a couple, just a couple of these images. Number one, the church is God's family. And that's why you're instructed to address each other as brothers and sisters, right? Brother Alex, Brother Sean, Sister Jane. Church is God's family. You're adopted into his family. The church is, again, the body of Christ, this organic union of humanity, arms and legs and eyes and ears with all kinds of diversity. Everybody's unique. Everybody is different, and yet we are united. We are one, connected, connected, connected together. The church is a body. We heard in the prayer, the church is a bride. And that means the church is beloved, loved. And just to remind you that you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Nehemiah said in his prayer, this covenant of love has been made with you. The family of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. 
humanity sharing in common by the Holy Spirit of God that takes the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and you know what the Holy Spirit does? He takes that and He applies it to you. And there is, we call it the application of redemption to life after life after life after life as you are drawn into the family of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, His people united together as brothers and sisters. This is the church. This is what Jesus is building. And what will this church do? What will this church do? You can't understand the book of Nehemiah unless you understand what the church is and what the church does. What does the church do? And you read through the Gospels, and Jesus gives us amazing clues. He says to the woman at the well that the Father seeks worshipers. That's just one hint. What does the church do? The church is a worshiping community, lifting up her heart and giving God the praise that He is due. Te Deum Laudamus. To God be praise and glory. You are God. We praise you. And then, well, Jesus had a conversation with Peter a little earlier as he's pulling in the nets. And Jesus says to him, Simon, I will make you fishers of men. One translation puts it like this. You will be catching people. And just prior to his ascension into heaven, the last recorded words of Jesus Christ to them, just before he leaves, he says, and you will be my witnesses. The church is a gathering community. A healthy church is a worshiping church. A healthy church is a gathering church reaching out beyond itself and like fishermen who cast their nets, drawing people in. Peter, you will be catching people. And the number of pins on this map should have a net increase on, on, on the number of pins on this map should have a net increase, right? As we gather people in. But then the third thing is that Jesus teaches us, the Bible teaches us, you will be a community that he builds up. He says, I will build my church. And Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 4, where he's describing the activity of the church. He says in Ephesians 4, 12 through 16, listen to these phrases. He gave pastors and teachers for the, here, here's the same word that Jesus used when he said, I will build my church, for the building up of the body of Christ. And speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in Christ, in love as each part does its work. And that is why I'm so passionate about this map with pins. Not because it's, it's a map, but because every one of these pins represents the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, And with that in mind, now we're ready to tune in to the book of Nehemiah. Because what's going on is this building of the church in the Old Covenant. Let me outline this book for you. In the first six chapters, 
Nehemiah gives himself to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 10, it's all about the worship of God and this marvelous covenant renewal, passionate giving of praise to God in chapters 8 through 10. Then chapters 11 and 12 is all about the growing of the population. See, I'm not imposing these things into Scripture. It's all about the growing of the population right here because uh, there weren't enough people in yet. And so they're reeling the people in back into the community of God. And then the last chapter is all about fanning into flame. You know what the bellows are? You blow on the fire. You Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, you want the campfire to burn brightly. You fan it into flame. It's all about fanning into flame, building up the faith and the zeal and the holiness of the people of God. And that's how it should be. So, point number two. Nehemiah is obsessed with the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Well, to understand this, you need to know, I guess, what the, what the writers call the backstory. What's the backstory? How did we get to this moment where Nehemiah is in Susa, in Persia, longing to hear the news of Judah? Well, Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, they, these two books, and they used to be one book, these, these books record a very dark hour in the history of Israel. But Nehemiah knew the Scriptures. We'll see that from his own prayers. His prayers are filled with biblical phrases. But Nehemiah knew the Scriptures, and it wasn't always that way. It used to be so good. Go back to 1000 B.C., and there's this shepherd named David, and he's playing his guitar to the sheep. (laughs) And God loves his heart. And God raises up David and makes him king, king over Israel, and takes him into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem becomes the city of David, the city of God. And God is there with his people. And after David comes Solomon. And Solomon reigns in wisdom. The queen of Sheba visits him there. And she is utterly astounded at the blessing that has fallen on Israel. With the wisdom of Solomon and the opulence of his palace and the beauty of the temple. And by that time we read in 1 Kings 8.56, there was rest on every side. All of the good promises made through Moses, had been realized. Silver was like stones, and cedar wood was like figs on the tree. The high point, the pinnacle of blessing in Old Covenant Israel. But after Solomon comes his knuckle-headed son, Rehoboam, who listens to fools. And lurking around the corner is Jeroboam, son of Nabat, who delights in wickedness. And they begin their quarrel. And the kingdom is divided. 
the northern kingdom, the ten tribes uh, live apart from Jerusalem. And Jeroboam is delighting in setting up drive-through idolatry. Just come right up and come and worship your God, whoever you want. And there's all kinds of wickedness and idolatry in the north. And in the south, in the southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin, yes, there are pockets of good kings and occasional revival. But by and large, they descend into idolatry and apostasy. And Nehemiah in his prayer reminds us what happened because he quotes from Leviticus. And Leviticus tells us in chapter 26, verse 33, the word of the Lord, if you break my covenant and engage in idolatry, I will scatter you among the nations and your cities will lie in ruins. And that is precisely what happens. And in around, do you remember, 722 B.C., the Assyrians are on the march, and they come, and they take the northern kingdom captive and into exile. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come, and they sweep through the region, and off goes the southern kingdom into exile. But he knows, Nehemiah does, there is a promise. And the promise is that they will return. And I want you to know your Bible here. Christians, you should know this is your history, you see. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is about the return to the promised land. And so, uh, it's really covering three returns. If you study them, you'll see that it happens in three installments. And the first expedition is led by this guy named Zerubbabel. Have you ever met someone named Zerubbabel? So Zerubbabel, he returns around 538 B.C., a good man. He brings a guy named Jeshua, the priest, with him, and they want to rebuild the temple of God because Cyrus, the king of Persia, is a tolerant king. The Assyrians were ruthless and wicked. The Babylonians were ruthless and wicked. They had their day, but now the Persians have overtaken. And this is a, an amazing culture that under the providence of God actually has respect for the worship of these indigenous peoples that they have conquered. And Cyrus the king says, I, I know from your scriptures you have a sacred place and, and there was a temple there that had been destroyed, but you should go back and build, rebuild your temple, Cyrus says. Why would he say that? Because God has the heart of the king in his hand. And so Zerubbabel returns. And it takes him about 20 years. And it happens in fits and starts. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah, they're both listed in the book of Ezra 1 through 6 that describe this. And boy, oh boy, they had a hard time going. They get started great like you as you start your read through the Bible in a year plan, you know. And you get through January, you get halfway through February, and then you're about... Three weeks behind, and you give up. Somebody came to them and said, Boo. They fell apart. And Haggai and Zechariah come alongside them. And, and uh, we read that, that uh, in Ezra 6, 14 through 16, listen to this though, over this 20-year period, so the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, they finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel 
and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. And the temple was completed, and they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Amazing. That's the first step. The second return happens then in the rest of the book of Ezra because it's led by this wonderful man. He's called a scribe. Ezra the scribe. And this guy has it together. So much so that Nehemiah, when we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah is going to defer to Ezra. Even though Nehemiah is the boss, he says, but you guys need to listen to Ezra. Because he knows the word. And he knows the way. And, and, the, and the Persian kings themselves are excited about these Jewish people actually conforming themselves to the decrees of God, their God. <laughs> so Ezra, you go back and get things started up again. And now we're set for the third part of the return. In 432 B.C., the third expedition comes back to do what? The city still lies in ruins, and the walls of Jerusalem have been burned with fire. And now Nehemiah has come to lead the people to bring once again the security and dignity that the city of God should have. He's obsessed with the walls. Why? I've just told you why. Because walls mean security. Walls mean safety. Refuge. And is it not true, North Shore Community Church, should we not be a place of safety for people who come to us beaten, frustrated, knocked around by the world, sick with the sin in their own life, wrestling with guilt, and should we not be the refuge of safety for them to come in and find healing and hope and peace? You see, the walls in the ancient world, the walls in the ancient world were like that security alarm system. If you don't have the walls, then any thug can come in at night and attack you and your wife and your children and take your stuff. But when the walls are in place, you dwell in safety. And even more, the walls represent dignity and honor. For this is the city of God. And God should be honored. And all who see her, the city on a hill, should honor the God of this city, the God of Jerusalem. And this leads us right into point number three. In our own exploration of the book of Nehemiah, we are going to discover two men in particular, Ezra and Nehemiah, who have this holy ambition for God. And you and I, we are to have a holy ambition for God. Isn't that a great phrase? Holy ambition for God. What would this look like? Well, next week we're going to learn from the prayer of Nehemiah that he prays right in the beginning. But just as we finish out this morning, I want to whet your appetite to meet these two men. 
These brothers, these two main characters, are those that fulfill what was read in the Scripture earlier from 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, which was written around just before those three pilgrimage back, pilgrimages back. And it says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. And although Ezra and Nehemiah aren't perfect, and they aren't perfect, sometimes they get really angry and they pull out people's hair. (laughs) No, no, they're not perfect. There's only one who is perfect. That's Jesus Christ. There's only one king and head of the church. There's only one perfect pastor. That's Jesus Christ. But there is a quality of love for God that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that reflect Jesus Christ. And there is this faithfulness to the covenant that sets them apart, and because of that, God strengthens them. And do you ever wake up in the morning and the first thing out of your mouth, at least in your mind, is, I need strength. I need some strength today, Lord. And it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that the eyes of the Lord are looking for the heart that is committed to Him that He may strengthen them. And I think that's how Nehemiah and Ezra wake up in the morning. I need strength, Lord. Here's my heart. Let's start with Ezra. What do you know about Ezra? Pretty obscure character in the Bible. But you can't understand the book of Nehemiah unless you've been introduced to Ezra. And my favorite verse is Ezra 7, verse 10. And it says this, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And what I love about this guy is this sort of three-stage process in his life that just revolves over and over again. He devotes himself first to the study of the Word of God, then to, it says, the observance. What does that mean, observance? Does that mean he's just looking at it, I'm observing it? No, no. The better translation would be to the application of the Word of God. He actually then puts it into practice, and he obeys it. So he studies it, and then he says, well, I guess I need my life to conform to this. But he doesn't stop there. What's the third part of it that it says right there? And then he teaches it to others. And what he's describing there is just the the life of the church. It's why we do what we do, friends. We give ourselves to the studying of the Word and then to the obedience to it, to to put it into our practice and then to sharing it with others and teaching it. Parents to children, youth leaders to teenagers, Sunday school teachers to their people, elders to their home fellowship groups. and, And that's the picture. So rich and beautiful, isn't it? I heard a great story by Philip Riken. Uh, talking about the pastor standing at the door 
after church. And a man comes up to him and shakes his hand and says, Great sermon, Pastor. And the preacher said, That remains to be seen. Why did he say that? Because he said, the jury's still out whether or not it affected your heart and you put it into practice and then you reproduced it in someone else, you see. Because it ain't a great sermon if it just sounded good to your ears. Ezra knew this. Look, Jesus, Ezra is just a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to us in John 13, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Okay? So that's what we're all about here. That's what Ezra was all about. Is my heart set the same way that Ezra's is? Do I have a a heart set on the daily study of the Word of the Lord and the application of it to my life and then the sharing of it with others? That's what you do. You study the gospel. You apply the gospel. You share the gospel, the Christian life. And when we think about Nehemiah, we come back to this term, the visioneer. And you just... You just want to get to know people like this. I love people like this, this wonderful man. He has a vision for glorifying and serving God and for building up the people of God, but he's more than just the guy with his head in the clouds. His feet are on the ground, and he knows how to engineer the pathway to make it happen. This, this is remarkable, this, this visioneering Again, I got this from a title of a book by Andy Stanley who says this visioneering is making it come to pass. You know, you can shovel dirt into bags. No, no interest, really. Do you have anybody want to shovel dirt into bags? But if the flood is coming and you will save the city... If you build the dam along the edge of the river and you pile the bags up along to keep the water from flooding in and, and destroying everyone's houses, and so you mobilize the entire community to fill bags and to stack them up to keep the waters back, all of a sudden the shoveling of dirt has much more meaning and the vision of the safety and the care of the people is before, before you in every shoveling move that you make. Some of you know I'm an admirer of Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Not just because Teddy Roosevelt lived in Oyster Bay, though I think that's pretty cool, I love seeing that statue of Roosevelt, the Rough Rider, as you ride into our town. And one day, I don't know if you know this story, a man who was a great admirer of Teddy Roosevelt came to him and and exclaimed, Mr. Roosevelt, you are a great man. And in his very characteristic honesty, he said, no. Teddy Roosevelt is simply a plain and ordinary man, highly motivated. 
which really captures the guy, if you've ever studied him. Highly motivated, and I like that. In his, his book on Christian leadership, Charles Swindoll uh, compares Teddy Roosevelt and Nehemiah, you see. And Nehemiah, he's just, he's a working stiff who has worked his way up the ladder. He's now the cupbearer to the king. It's taken a while. He's worked hard. He's made his way. He's got a comfortable life. He's got an influential life. He's made it pretty good. But his heart, his heart is elsewhere. And it's not, for him, it's not about building the American dream or the Persian dream, as it were. There is something so much more. You see, somebody had to say, I think Nehemiah's crazy. Was he crazy to leave his plush condo in Susa and go back to a city whose walls were burned with fire? Was he out of his mind? No. He just loved God and the people of God. Was Jesus Christ crazy to leave the comfort of heaven, the glory of heaven, and come into the misery of this world? And then to die for ungrateful people? Was he nuts? No. He said, I will build my church. I will die for her. And he did. He died for you. He laid down his life. He gave up his life for you and for me, for his church. And you are to believe in him and to hear his summons to you to come and believe in him and be integrated into the life of his bride, his body, his temple, his people. Oh, friends, it is a grave mistake to think that church is what you go to. I go to church. It's a bad phrase. It is a theologically incorrect phrase. The church is what you are, and you must love her and give yourself up for her. Not to save her, because you can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. But you can give yourself to her mission. And you can embrace her values. And you can march in step with her. You know there's a great hymn. We're about to sing it. A wonderful old hymn. It goes, Onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle. See his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, in worship. Onward, Christian soldiers, in witness. Onward, Christian soldiers, in building up and nurturing the body of Christ together. Will you do that? That's the call of Jesus today. I hope you hear it. And I hope over these next months, he will energize you and me like never before. And we will grow as his people gathered and scattered. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
You are going on before us. That we know. The 23rd Psalm says, You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And oh, are we glad. You lead us not in our righteousness, but in yours. We pray, O Lord, that no more will we just go to church. We pray that we will be your bride, your body, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that we will be who you want us to be on Long Island, O Lord, for your glory. Build the walls of Jerusalem, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.